Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Let's go to Gerard Cassidy with decades of expert. He always comes in swinging into the lobster restaurants of Portland, Maine. He's with RBC Capital Markets. Gerard Cassidy, I want to go to cost and geographic reduction as expense control. When you give up on retail in Vietnam and in Beirin, is that nothing more than a closeted cost reduction? Tom, I think it is. And when you take a look at the markets that they're exiting, the numbers that they've provided really do not have a material impact to the bottom line. Now, you might recall uh, some years back they exited a handful of these consumer markets and they obviously didn't go all the way. And Jane Frazier, with her first strategic move, is trying to make the company more profitable by exiting these markets where they really don't earn very much money. Jared, what's left? What's more to do? It's going to be interesting because this has been the one area of focus for many investors that they needed to really uh, trim down their global footprint on the consumer side. They just didn't have the scale in certain markets. So then the next question is, you know, how do you build up scale in the United States? When you take a look at two of their biggest peers, J.P. Morgan Chase and Bank America, their consumer banking franchises in the United States have return on equities, a return on tangible common equities of over 30 percent. City does not match that number. So City will have to take a look at how do we get bigger in the U.S. Jared, we asked this question of Shanali and she answered it delicately. And you can answer it a little bit more aggressively, I imagine, because here at Bloomberg, we have to be slightly diplomatic, of course. But do you see this as a big change from Corbett to Fraser? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, she indicated on the last call when she participated in the fourth quarter earnings call that there were changes coming. And we expect to hear more guidelines on new targeted return numbers, what they're going to expect to be able to achieve with these strategic changes. You know, City has a lot of work to do, a lot of heavy lifting. But now with the new leadership under Jane Frazier, I think they're going to be able to accomplish new and better numbers for shareholders. Gerard, so far, who's winning in the capital market space? I mean, all of them have been beating across the board, and people have been talking about the frothy markets, but who's winning? It looks like so far, when you compare all the numbers, Goldman Sachs came out on top in almost all the different categories, whether it was ECM, DCM, or in trading in markets uh, for FIC or equity. They seem to have by far the best numbers out of all of them. But to your point, they're all very strong numbers. And there's a question of how long this can last. And I was looking at a headline about Citigroup's incredible equity trading numbers following on the SPAC-a-balooza or whatever you want to call it. How long can these trends last to continue supporting their earnings? It's going to be more challenging as we get into this year, unless we get continued volatility and strengths in the markets, and there that's hard to predict. But we should understand that the SPAC ECM business, that has started to obviously slow down because a number of the investors in SPACs, they've already allocated the money for that, and there's not, not as much money to go into SPACs. So now we need to see the de-SPACing. That's when they actually do the mergers. So that's going to be a lift to advisory businesses as we get into the second half of this year. 
George Cassidy, we talked to Thomas Schoed, who you know well from KBW earlier. We, we reminisced on Bank of New England long ago and far away, the ultimate roll-ups that you were directly involved in. Do you presume another season of roll-ups because of the technological superiority of these winners? Tom, I think you're you're right. We are going to see more consolidation. It's already started to pick up. As you might recall, Tom, when you and I were young men, we had 18,000 banks in the early 1980s. Today, we're down at 5,100. We expect continued roll-ups or consolidation to, con- uh, to continue over the next two to three years, and it will be small community banks uh, like Provident acquiring uh, SB1 last year out of New Jersey, but also the big deals like we saw with M&T acquiring People's Bank of uh, Connecticut. So we're going to see big regional deals, we believe, over the next two to three years. And the Canadians will likely get stronger in the U.S. as Toronto Dominion has indicated they want to get bigger in the U.S. George, you're so gracious with your time on mornings like this morning. Can I just squeeze another one in? Just your report card for the quarter. We had Bank of America earlier this morning as well. We had the likes of Goldman, J.P. Morgan, too, in the mix in the last 24 hours. Who won the quarter? I would say so far, you got to put Goldman Sachs at the front of the list. They have won the quarter. But when you look at the universal banks, we've had three of them, J.P. Morgan City and Bank America. And I would say J.P. Morgan probably came out ahead. But they all have the same trends, John, which is these loan loss reserve releases are very meaningful. They're going to continue throughout the year. And that's going to be the bridge until we get loan growth and higher revenue growth in the second half of the year. Gerard, good to hear from you, sir. I know you've got to run. Gerard Cassidy there of RBC. Right now, my conversation of the day on banking with Thomas Michaud. Thomas Michaud, Chief Executive Officer of Keefe, Briette and Woods, a stifle company. And we're thrilled that Mr. Michaud could join us this morning because he knows you walk into a banker's office and you start to talk about consolidation. Tom, you guys invented it back in 1962 at uh, RL Day and all that, Tucker Anthony, RL Day and the merger into KBW. You guys literally invented the modern consolidation with the Bank of New England. Are we going to see a redux in this bank boom of consolidation? Consolidation. Wow, well, Tom, that's a great memory. You do remember a long way back. We did work on those deals for Bank of New England. But um, so the industry has been consolidating for uh, for many decades. And the question is, what's the pace? But uh, consolidation is an important theme here. And we think it is going to continue. And we think it's going to continue for a couple of primary reasons. Uh, number one is it seems as if for the first time, at least in my 35 year career, the bigger banks are more profitable. You look at our earnings models for next year, we see them earning about 200 basis points more return on tangible common equity. And it feels like it's going to be consistent. It's not just a flash Mm -hmm. in the pan. So scale seems to be working. That's number one. Number two is we're in a really slow revenue growth environment. And one way to grow earnings costs out. And then the third reason is we thought fintech was important pre-COVID. What we've learned during COVID, it's even more important than we thought. All the trends that we were seeing were accelerated by the pandemic, and that's going to drive even... 
one need for investment. Okay. You're going to see more consolidation. Yeah, I, knew, I knew you were going there. I want to go, folks, into some inside baseball here, and we do this on Global Wall Street. What is the profitability, Thomas showed, of a digital dollar of revenue versus a traditional consumer banking or business loan banking dollar of revenue? Is it like technology where it's 85% net to the bottom line, where the competition, the old technology is 15% to the bottom line? Well, I, I, the, the, the way I would answer that question is I look at the efficiency ratios of the online banks versus the traditional banks. And what are they? And they, they may end up being 25% lower uh, than the more traditional bank, just, you know, just in a big picture view. Uh, once they hit a critical mass, you'll see that they drive much lower efficiency ratios. And that's going to be the key. And that's why you're going to see more and more branch rationalization yeah. around the country to try to get those costs out. It's on Keen. I think that's what's so interesting about the last 12 months. The holdouts, the people that didn't do, want to do the online banking, the digital banking, they were forced to do it. Tom, they had no other choice. Thomas Show, you've talked about the rationalization. Just how big is that going to be and how many jobs will be lost? Well, there will, well, there will be consolidation and loss of jobs out in those facilities, but at the same time, you're seeing a, a, an incredible amount of hiring happening in the IT groups of these companies. Uh, and so I do think that headcount will come down over time in the banking industry, uh, but it'll be a, somewhat of a mix shift at the same time. Tom Keane, that has been the story, hasn't it? The rationalization, the loss of jobs well, over yeah, the last 10 years, yeah, you're going to see I, more of it. I, yes, you're right. And we all see that at the four branches on the five corners of any street. I should say the five branches on the four corners of the street. That's when young Michaud came out of Middlebury and we were overbanked. Tom Michaud, John's point, is it one for one? What's the ratio? No, because no, no, we're just talking about one half of the equation, John, which is what's happening at the core, the traditional banks. But at the same time, you look at somebody like Galaxy Digital, uh, what's happening at that company. I, I, I've heard a quote from the CEO that in the last few months they've hired over 70 people. These companies that are standing up as competitors we didn't even know about three or four years ago, they're hiring, hiring like crazy. So, And they're still within the financial services industry. So it's all about a shift that's occurring, which I think in some ways is healthy because it's evolving as the economies evolve. Tom, Tom show one thing you talked about was the big question is how much can they actually increase profits going forward that really will stem from loan growth. We've heard from a lot of the big banks already that has been a challenging area. How concerned are you about the lack of loan originations, the lack of demand as a result of cash flush consumers and corporations? You hit the tension nail right on the head because that is the question. So just to set up what the tension is, I think, with investors in the market right now is. Credit quality, far better than anyone expected, and, and results continue to exceed expectations. Negative loan loss provisions. I saw some banks recently had practically zero net charge-offs. Remarkable. Capital is building. 80-year strong balance sheets getting stronger. There's $800 billion of excess liquidity, we think, in the banking system right now. That's the fuel for, we think, a lot of growth. The problem is you're not seeing it right now because the demand for, for credit from the private sector just isn't there. And so if the economy is as strong as many people think and we think, and what the industry is saying, is some of this excess liquidity will, will be soaked up. And we'd like to think that by the end of the year, you'll start to see revenues begin to grow as core loans begin to grow. 
If it doesn't happen at year end, I think it's a question of when, not if. And that's what investors are looking for right now, because you're not seeing it right now in the industry. But the industry is in great shape to grow when that demand comes back. In other that's words, the, that's the next leg of this rally. But the rally we've had since last September is the credit improvement rally. The next rally is going to need to be the revenue growth rally, which really hasn't started yet. But people believe it will. And this is the tension right now, this question of how hot can the economy run if that loan demand doesn't pick up materially by year end? What you're saying is, is different from what I'm hearing from other analysts. You're saying that if it doesn't pick up by year end, it just is a matter of when. It's not a question of whether the economy is truly hot or not. Do you think, for example, that we are going to uh, see banks be able to profit from this hot economy in a way that perhaps people are discounting as a result of not seeing that loan demand? Yeah, I, I, I do. I do think that banks will participate, but I think that you're going to really start to see a, uh, a separation between the winners and the losers. And I, and I really believe that if you're an old school bank that is in an, an area that's not a faster growth area and haven't really invested in a lot of the new engagement of technology platforms, uh, there's a chance your growth curve could be left behind. But I think that the major players, and that's why you're seeing the consolidation, you're seeing Bigger banks stand up so they can compete with really the non-banking challenge that's happening. And I think that's the big surprise. And that's what Jamie Dimon talked about in his annual uh, letter to shareholders. I do think the growth will be there. I think it's a matter of when, not if. And I think the banks have done a good job of keeping their companies in good shape to be ready for it. Hey, Tom, it's always great to catch up with you, sir, to get your thoughts on this sector. Always appreciate your time. You know that. Thomas Show there of KBW. Right now we're going to digress, and this is exactly who I want to talk to about all this Coinbase stuff, and that is Michael Wolf. He has a wonderful cross-section of experience in new technology. There is a tilt to entertainment, his acclaimed books on entertainment and technology, but we're thrilled that the gentleman from Activate uh, could join us uh, this morning. Michael Wolf, I look at Coinbase, and as Kathy said, it's a distributional force as well. It is set up based on an invented scarcity. Bitcoin has a structured scarce asset feature. How does Coinbase deal with the fragility of an invented scarcity? How are they going to deal with that strategically forward? Well, the way to think about, about Coinbase is as an exchange. And it takes half a percentage on points on every transaction. So the real comparison is to the is the New York Stock Exchange, NASDAQ. Uh, and in fact, by the, by the way, Coinbase's valuation is um, is about the same as the other two's added up. So so it's not a question that we when we look at Coinbase, we should not be worried about the volatility of the underlying cryptocurrencies. What we really should be looking at is the number of transactions which are likely to increase. Michael, how much should we be worried about regulation? Well, regulation, there's, there's a lot to be ironed out. And one of the issues is, is tax treatment. The IRS has said that Bitcoin is not currency, but rather property. Um, the, the, the regulation has always taken a while to catch up with technology. In this case, it looks like it's keeping, it's keeping pace. The bigger issue is that this offering is really more about the, the sort of coming out party or the uh, first public listing 
of a, of, a, of a currency, which is going to be an inflection point for the rest of all digital currencies. Michael, I got to say, I hope I have a $100 billion uh, party coming out to some new America. I wonder, though, going forward, just generally, whether the, uh, whether the valuations are incredibly inflated based on everybody trying to get ahead of growth and the next big thing. How do you parse that out at a time when you've got banks flush with cash looking to buy fintech, when you've got individuals looking for the next uh, way of making efficient payments? The, the, what, what, what's fascinating about Coinbase is this is the first way in which individuals can take, play, take part of this new market for cryptocurrencies without being subject themselves to the volatility of those currencies. So I, I think we're going to see that um, the Coinbase is going to be held widely at this market cap. It's going to be held by index funds. And so it's going to allow smaller investors as well as individuals to, to take part of this entire um, move towards cryptocurrencies. Michael Wolf, is it like an eBay equivalent of years ago where there's been a structure, there's been a launch, there's been a huge price repricing, an advancement in price, and now basically it's dead money forward? Um, I don't think so. I think that this is, once again, this is an exchange. It's likely to be uh, one of the, the, the few exchanges that dominates this business. It's actually um, the second largest exchange worldwide. The, the, the largest is a company called Binance. And, um, and so this, we're going to see so much more activity. We've only seen so far Bitcoin as, as really a vehicle of investment and speculation. It's only beginning as a vehicle of payment. Good to catch up, Michael. As always, good to hear from you, sir. Michael J. Wolf of Activate. Joining us right now, Andy Barr. He is a congressman from Lexington. That would be the 6th Congressional District of Kentucky. Andy, I first got to go to the most exciting two minutes in sports. You are going to do the Kentucky Derby on May 1. Tell us about the crowd there, given the pressures of this pandemic. Well, Churchill Downs is excited to return the Derby to the first Saturday in May. That's the traditional day. It's always been run with two exceptions. Uh, uh, once in 1945 during World War II, and the other was last year during the pandemic. So we're excited, even if the crowd will be a little limited because of social distancing requirements, maybe half, maybe a little less than half capacity, but still uh, the most exciting two minutes in sports will be returning to Churchill Downs on the first Saturday in May. Uh, Congressman Barr, some of my ancient ancestors were named after a gentleman named Henry Clay. There were two generations of Henry Clay King. You went to the Henry Clay High School in Kentucky, and it is a symbol of the tensions of race in this nation back well over 100 years and forever. Please discuss reparations and the tensions that you see between the two parties as we engage this debate again. Well, no doubt there's so much partisanship in Washington. And, you know, President Joe Biden, who is a member of the other party for me, uh, gave, I think, an uplifting inaugural address calling for unity and bipartisan solutions. Unfortunately, ever since that speech, we've seen a president governed from the hard left. As uh, Karl Rove observed recently in the Wall Street Journal, 
this uh, so-called infrastructure plan, which is really more of the Green New Deal and tax increases with no real effort to reach out to Republicans, it's really uh, solidifying uh, President Biden's reputation as the most profligate and partisan president in history. That's a strong statement, but unfortunately, there's really not been any genuine outreach uh, to the other side of the aisle. Look, both parties deserve blame for this, but I would like to see this president and congressional Democrats in the majority reach out and just at least uh, entertain some of our ideas. Congressman, you said both parties deserve some blame for this, and this does seem to be the playbook that every time there's a new president, the other side <clears throat> says it's not bipartisan at all. And that president goes it alone and says, well, we couldn't get anything done if we actually tried to do it in a bipartisan level. What could Republicans do right now better to actually move closer to a bipartisan solution? Well, look, this is not an infrastructure bill that the president is proposing. It's a $3 trillion uh, left-wing wish list. Only 5 to 6 percent can be adequately described as financing roads and bridges, which is what both parties say we need. The most generous definition of infrastructure, which would include things like high-speed internet, broadband, ports, airports, uh, even electrical grid uh, reliability upgrades, those kinds of infrastructure investments, I think, would earn bipartisan support. But in this bill, only account for about 30 percent of the total spending. We have a new definition of infrastructure, including the care infrastructure, which is really just a massive expansion of Medicaid. And then you have uh, some of these other unrelated items, um, Green New Deal items that were included. But then on top of that, there's no consideration of Republican ideas on financing public-private partnerships and streamlining of permitting and regulatory reform. None of those Republican ideas are being even entertained. It's just more big government tax and spending and uh, unfortunately a huge massive tax increase that will uh, bring us back to the bad old days of corporate inversions, moving jobs overseas, stagnant wages, and I would argue much lower wages. The National Association of Manufacturing says we're going to lose a million jobs in the first year if these corporate tax increases go into effect. Congressman, if there was some sort of agreement that was smaller, say an $800 billion, $650 billion, some Republicans are asking for a bipartisan infrastructure bill targeting the areas that are more commonly thought of as infrastructure, would you be willing to raise taxes to pay for it? Well, I think we, we ought to consider user fees as a way to finance infrastructure. That's the way we've always done it in this country. But to make America less competitive by not just uh, increasing the corporate rate from 21 percent to 28 percent, but taking our corporate tax rate to a level uh, that's higher than the, the tax rate in communist China, uh, raising it to a level that's the highest among all developed nations. Because remember, it's not just raising the rate from 21 to 28 percent that the president is proposing. He's proposing to do so without removing the base broadening reforms that we put into place in the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And when you add on top of the federal income tax rate, the state and local corporate tax rates, that's where you push American corporations into a very non-competitive position. Congressman, one final question, and I do this after President Trump uh, gave support to the senator from Florida a few days ago, and of course with your lifelong work with Senator McConnell. I want you to frame for us how you perceive your Republican Party right now. So much as it's the party of Trump, is it? Well, look, I mean, I think our party is broad and diverse, just like the Democratic Party is. These are broad, enveloping coalitions. but. 
we are still the party of limited government and free enterprise. And what we've seen a troubling trend is that a big business, Wall Street CEOs, have kind of aligned themselves with the woke left. And um, maybe that's a reaction to the Trump phenomenon where uh, the Republican Party is more gravitating toward Main Street small businesses, farmers, uh, rural America. We represent the grassroots American people, and large institutions are letting us down. Uh, Wall Street, um, and look, I believe in free enterprise, but if, if we're in this battle between capitalism and socialism, and the CEOs of the big banks through their ESG agenda is aligning themselves with the socialists, where are the capitalists in this country? I think we need people who really believe in free enterprise, and that's Main Street small businesses and entrepreneurs across this country who really believe in limited government. Congressman, you are a skilled media operator because you must know I've only got 40 seconds left and can't ask any follow-up questions See, because this got that. hot at it the just, end. Gifted. Andy, can you come back so we can pick up where we left off, please? There's some really important points we need to talk about. Congressman Andy Barr there, Republican Jonathan, from Kentucky. <laughs> Thank you, sir. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.